Hello you and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we are talking about the Joy Luck Club and we are talking about it with Jasmine Chan. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall. The Joy Luck Club is a 1993 American drama film about the relationship between Chinese-American women and their Chinese immigrant mothers. It was directed by Wayne Wang. The film is based on the 1989 novel of the same name by Amy Tan, who co-wrote the screenplay with Ronald Bass. The film was produced by Bass, Tan, Wang, and Patrick Markey, while Oliver Stone served as executive producer. Jasmine Chan is great. She's a former reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. She lives in Chicago. And her first book, The School for Good Mothers, is out now. It's doing quite well, deservedly so. Please check that book out. Buy it, gift it, get it from the library, read Jasmine's words. And how are you doing, everybody? How is your life? What are you thinking about? What are you reading? What's going on? Let us know uh, over on twitter.com uh, at youaregoodpod. Let us know on Instagram at youaregoodpod. I'm also on Blue Sky as Alex Steed. I'm, I, I'm hoping that that is a viable alternative. <laughs> so in whichever way makes sense for you, let us know how you're doing. And don't you forget it that you, my friend, are good. You Are Good is made possible with your support, thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon or by way of Apple Podcast subscriptions, you make the show possible. It's how the artists and the uh, the authors and the writers and the musicians and all of the people behind this show uh, make a living is by way of uh, the support that comes in through the show. We really appreciate it. And in exchange for that support, you get bonus episodes. We have a new bonus episode coming up. This one's going to be about one of Sarah's and my favorite movies, uh, Manhunter and uh, Red Dragon. And that'll be out this month. And then we'll see. Oh, and then we're going to get back into our Sex in the City chats. We have a good time in the bonus episodes. But thank you so much to everyone who supports us in that way. We appreciate you. This is essentially our Mother's Day episode, which is perfect. It is a big one in the mother's department. This episode requires a trigger warning for everything imaginable. Not, uh, I don't think that there's like graphic violence, but there, uh, by way of family tension, by way of uh, tensions between parents and children, there are children who die, there is rape and sexual assault. Like this is a big heavy movie because this is a movie in which daughters try to understand what their mothers have gone through. So I just want you to know that that's the case. And as always, we try to be as gentle as humanly possible in dealing with every one of these. This is a sensitive episode. Just want you to know it. And if uh, you're not feeling up to that right now, please remember that we have all sorts of other episodes for you. But again, know that we try to tackle difficult subject matter with big hearts. And I hope that you can hear that. All right, let's get into it. Let's get into the Joy Luck Club with Jasmine Chan. Uh, this conversation was a delight for such a heavy movie. We had a great time. Let's do this. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Seed. What's going on in your life? Where are you at? 
Ah, I am in beautiful Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm drinking an Iron City beer, iced tea, a malt beverage with natural flavor. Oh, wow. And I am having the time of my life. How about you? That's a Rust Belty beverage if I've ever heard it. You're a Rust Belty beverage. <laughs> I'm doing okay. I, I've been telling you excitedly about this book I'm reading called The Lonely City, which ends... In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, it ends in the Warhol Museum archive, which I visited when we were in town. I didn't visit the archive because I'm not cool enough to be allowed into the archive, but I peeked through the windows. I'm sure if you make an appointment, they'll let you in. I was remembering recently one of the aspects of the movie Red Dragon that was cut from Manhunter, I think wisely, is a scene where our unhinged serial killer apparently has been corresponding with the William Blake archives oh, that makes for sense. years, makes an appointment, goes in, views a painting, and then eats it. Oh, so my gosh. based on my knowledge, basically, and from Red Dragon, they'll let anybody in there. <laughs> well, I, I do want to recommend highly to anyone who's interested in art and being lonely, Olivia Lang's The Lonely City. It's really tremendous. And there's a lot of Warhol talk and a lot of Valerie Solanas talk, who we mm. I enjoy. I enjoy both sides of that coin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This is going to be our Mother's Day episode. And I'm wondering, Sarah, mm-hmm. have you seen any real heavy movies about moms lately? Um, I have, but also, Alex, have you read any fairly heavy books about moms lately? Have I? I don't know if you have, actually. Is that a set up to an answer? Boy, is there a book for you, and it's called The School for Good Mothers, and its author is Oh, well done. I have read this book, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I screwed up the setup. Yes, I have. And its author is our wonderful guest, who has brought us... Another heavy mother. It's just heavy mother Olympics today. We're talking about the Joy Luck Club with our friend Jasmine. Hello. Hello. I'm so happy to be here as one of your super fans. And I love that this is going to be your Mother's Day episode. So I guess it will be for the moms who like to cry. Oh, my gosh. Which, from my understanding, a big part of motherhood is crying. So it just seems like uh, preaching to the choir in a way. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to be um, bringing you a very feelings forward movie. Jasmine, tell us briefly why you've brought it and then we'll explore even further throughout the episode. So Sarah, in addition to being a uh, nationally beloved podcast host, is also uh, one of my early readers for, for my novel. And so when, when Sarah said, would you ever uh, consider being on the show? I said, actually, have I not been dreaming of this for the last few years? So I love your show so much. And when we talked about what movie I might suggest, I instantly thought of The Joy Luck Club. Ooh. So I saw this movie right when it came out in 1993. And... I'm surprised that I actually remember any of it because I cried so much that I don't even know how much I interacted with what I was seeing on the screen. Mm -hmm. So I was a sophomore in high school and I started like weeping at the feather story, which for Mm. any listeners who haven't seen the movie is the opening credits. Three minutes in. No, it is is three (laughs) seconds in. Like it is the first thing. that. And me too, by the way. Both times I watched this to record on it. So I started crying in the opening credits and then I wept for pretty much two and a half hours. And then 
all the Chinese mothers and daughters in the bathroom line after the movie just continued weeping in the bathroom line too. And like people were hugging each other. It was just this like communal emotional experience. So for your podcast, I couldn't imagine a better movie to talk about with you than the Joy Love Club. I mean, it just like hits all of the crying related pressure points. It's like a tidal wave. And I would love to give kind of the most bare bones summary I can. And then just to kind of to just get into it. But okay, so I read The Joy Luck Club in sixth grade. I think I had seen bits of the movie, but it was a book that I knew my mom had read and I think owned. And I just kind of wanted to know what she was thinking about. And a funny thing about it, too, Jasmine, I don't know if you remember this thing existing, but there was a picture book that was adapted from, I think, Ying Yang's part of this story called The Moon Lady. Uh, yes, I, I bought that for my daughter, and it is a yeah. very dark children's book. Yes. <laughs> uh, kind, kind of difficult to introduce at age three or four. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I had it when I was little, and I remember it so well, and it's and I remember it very fondly, but it's like, it's a story that isn't, uh, I don't even think alluded to in this movie, but Ying Yang is four. She's told by her nanny that she's going to be able to tell the moon lady her wish at some point tonight but she can only tell it to the moon lady because if girls say their wishes then they become selfish desires and then like someone is slaughtering something to prepare for dinner and she gets sprayed with blood and so she decides to like cover her whole outfit with blood so that no one will know that she got it dirty which is very relatable <laughs> which is also um the picture book element where you're showing it to a toddler it, it is uh, quite graphic about the blood <laughs> so yeah i do i did want to introduce amy tan to my daughter as early as possible but when we got to the later parts of the story i had to go hmm how to explain this <laughs> yeah and i think that was part of why i liked it is that it really <laughs> had a lot of blood in it for a children's book and I don't remember the blood being scary I remember it being scary because she gets lost and then her wish to the moon lady is to be found by her family but okay so the joy luck club is um, a story of four women who emigrated from China to San Francisco at about the same time they met at church and they brought up their daughters together so it's four mothers and their four daughters and the frame of the story is basically a dinner like a goodbye dinner for june whose mother has just died fairly suddenly and her aunties her mother's three best friends have just learned that uh already emotional um so june grew up knowing that when her mother suyan if i'm saying that at all okay when she was fleeing uh chunking during world war ii that she had her two little babies in a wheel trigger warning for everything that she had her two little babies in a wheelbarrow while she was trying to flee to reunite with her husband and the wheelbarrow broke and she couldn't take the babies with her and she was like dying of dysentery so she like left we we only learn the full details later in the movie but we find out that she left all of her gold and all of her money basically with the babies with a note asking someone to take care of them and then staggered off planning to die elsewhere so that you know nobody would not take the babies because it would be unlucky for her to die next to them and then uh she lived and had to deal with that for the rest of her life and was always looking for the babies and could never reunite with them but then it turns out that 
somehow they have I I don't understand how this works, but like that they that the babies have gotten in touch. Do do we like how did this how did this happen? How did the babies <laughs> figure it out? It makes more sense in the book. Okay. They kind of gloss over that in the movie. Yeah, they're just like somehow the babies have been located. And so June's one of her aunties, Auntie Lindo, is like, yes, I wrote to the babies and said that uh, their mother is still alive and can't wait to see them. And June is like, well, great. I'm so excited to go meet them in China and tell them that our mother is dead. (laughs) And so so it's like the most bittersweet thing you can imagine tasting, I think. And so the movie is kind of the frame of this this goodbye dinner that is telling us the stories of how all of these women and their daughters grew up. And so we have kind of in order Auntie Lindo, who was brokered into an arranged marriage when she was four, actually got married when she was 15. And this is like, it says a lot about this movie that this is the least emotionally intense of all the stories. And it's about forced child marriage. (laughs) Well, it has rebel teenage girl triumph. Yes. yes. Whereas the the other stories mostly lead with suffering. Yes. 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 Well said. And she's married to like this kind of young Louis the 16th type. Who's just like a bratty (laughs) younger boy who does not want to have sex with her. And so she's not producing heirs. And her way out of this is to convince everybody that the family's ancestors have appeared to her and told her that they can't go through with this marriage because her husband will die, right? Like she's she's been told this. So she like very cleverly escapes this arranged marriage. And then we see also kind of the most triumphant of the daughters, her daughter Waverly, whose story is that she is a child as a chess prodigy and then goes on strike because basically she feels her mother only loves her conditionally and then forgets how to be a chess prodigy while she's not playing chess and then falls in love with a white guy who has to learn how to use chopsticks. But he does. So we have Lindo and Waverly. That's our first mother and daughter pair. And we have kind of, you know, and in all of these, there's kind of a cathartic moment, I think, where the fundamentally the daughter is able to kind of say, like, you didn't you like you didn't know this, but this was the effect that you had on me. And so we have Ying Ying and Lena. Alex, you were struck by the scene. Ying Ying meets a handsome man who sticks his entire gross hand in a watermelon and eats it to flirt with her. It's very Mr. Pussy on Sex in the City. I was uh, shocked by that scene. <laughs> and like, you know, I've lived, I lived enough life to know at this point that if a man puts his entire hand in a fruit (laughs) and pulls it out while dead eyeing you that that's a red flag. But sometimes, unfortunately, we have to learn by lived experience. But sometimes you're 16. And and sometimes if you're a 15-year-old American girl watching it, you'll have no idea what it means. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the best for everyone. Yeah. (laughs) It is the most sinister introduction of a character I've ever seen on film. Yeah, and but you know, but when you're a teenager, totally. Sometimes you're like, "Yep, I'm. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go." And so they get married. Um, they have a baby. He will not stop cheating on her. And so, again, just, just I think you know nothing good is going to happen to this baby. Ying Ying, in a moment of, I don't know what, drowns her baby. And has to deal with that for the rest of her life. 
So yeah, so it's so much of this is like, you know why your mom's like that? You don't you you don't even fucking want to know, honestly, but we're gonna tell you anyway. In a quick, just a quick aside to sort of bring this uh, together. So June, at some point in an outburst with before she has realized that these children are out there. When she's a little girl. When she's a little girl says in order to get back at her mother, she is aware that her mother has had to give up these children and uh, kind of throws it in her face. I forget exactly what the impasse is. She says, I wish I was dead like those babies you killed in China. Fuck because she she believes that the the babies are actually dead and i mean chinese daughters are really good at hurting their moms is <laughs> is one of the other takeaways from this movie and so kind of everything we're seeing after that is you know like she says this thing in a superficial hurtful way and i have absolutely deflectively said stuff like that to oh, my yeah. parents in different contexts but like we're seeing the counter to that statement throughout the rest of this movie basically yeah and it is, and I identify so much with those moments of like, you know, you're so big and I'm so small, but I found this like smog, like hole in your dragon armor and I'm just going to like pull <laughs> vault in there and like seize my moment. And like, I've never not regretted it. Like it always feels awful. And like, I think men maybe kind of believe or culture believes that like women and their mothers, girls and their mothers, it's so sweet. It's so cute. They love each other. They have these sweet, oh, Mother's Day, these sweet relationships. And it's just like, you have no idea. <laughs> like it is an emotional slaughterhouse. <laughs> and it's and, it, and we do love each other. Like when a mother and daughter like truly love each other, maybe not in a functional way, but in a deep way. I don't think anyone knows as well how to destroy each other than a mother and a daughter do psychologically. I do think I think mothers and daughters love each other the way the two primary characters from Heat love each other. Is that like (laughs) 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 And sometimes you go out and you have a really nice dinner. (laughs) Just like in Heat. Absolutely. Or like or like Jodie Foster and Hannibal Lecter love each other. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the mother-daughter relationship. It is. There's absolutely so much love there, but it's a messy road. <laughs> yeah, but it's the love that makes you say, Do you know what you look like, Agent Starling, with your good bag and your cheap shoes? A rube. Well scrubbed, hustling rube. I'm I'm gonna remember this the next time I'm having trouble at bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Just, yeah, tucking in your beautiful daughter saying, good nutrition has given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation removed from poor white trash, are you, Agent Starling? I can't believe you can recite this from memory. I really can. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my only skills. So anyway. <laughs> so Auntie Ying Ying, the only way she can hurt her husband is by by taking away his son. So she does. And she has to live with that forever. And then her daughter, Lena, marries the guy who splits everything, despite being her boss. And they live in a $1 million house in San Francisco, which now in 2023 is probably worth $85 million. Right. Yes. And who's just like, just sucks. You know, it's like, I think that there's, we, we spend so much time talking and, and meaningfully so about like, just horrible power dynamics and relationships and sort of the dynamics of abuse. And like, I'm not saying this guy is definitely not abusive, but it's also, it's important to raise awareness about also that like, 
you deserve better than someone who sucks. And boy, does this guy suck. (laughs) Well, and I think like there's been in a way that like makes a lot of sense. But I think that there's like a flattening in what is considered abuse by bringing all new categories and stuff in, which I think is absolutely important. I'm not saying it's not important, but I think even outside of things that are like, is this abuse? Is this not abuse? Like ideally, you've been given enough to aspire to be treated well. Mm-hmm. And Ling Ling recognizes this behavior because she's obviously seen she's seen this behavior so intensely that it led to one of the most tragic experiences of her life. And she tries to warn her daughter. But like, you know, even with the warning from someone who's seen it firsthand, we don't always see it ourselves that we are settling into we are settling into settling. Oh, yeah. But I think I think a lot of the daughter's stories in both the book and the movie are about the daughters making themselves small in their yeah. relationships. Like mm. in in the book, I think Lena also has an eating disorder. So the oh, okay. so the reference to the ice cream in the movie is is that like when she was a child, she'd ate she'd eaten so much ice cream and made herself very sick. Like that okay. that doesn't make it into the movie. But right. but I mean in a not in Waverly's relationship, but in in some of the daughters' relationship, it's just a an effort to erase themselves within the marriage. Yeah. That makes sense. And I, we have an experience coming up where one of the small daughters gets big and I love it so much. She gets big by tapping into ancestors. Sorry, yes. I, don't mean to, I don't mean to blow it, but it's so exciting. Well, yeah, so this is the Anme and Rose story. Anme's mother was forced out and forced to abandon her when Anme was four, I think. A lot of terrible things happen when you're four in the story and then comes back for her a few years later and brings her to the household where she is a concubine for this horrible man. And Anmei learns the the full story that her mother did not willingly leave for this life, but that she was raped by the man whose concubine she is now forced to be and that she became pregnant and had a baby that was then given to one of his his wives to raise. And then Anmei's mother dies by suicide because she can't go on. And then there's the scene at the funeral. What does she do? Oh, she, she stages um, her, the, the mother. The mother's great rebellion is that she kills herself right before the Lunar New Year. So oh, it, it's it, like bringing bad luck on the house. And so Anme basically shouts at everyone at the funeral and says, like, if you don't pay respects, like there's going to be misfortune on everyone. And, and she forces the husband to raise her and her brother as first children rather than as children of the concubines. Yeah. Mm. Which is the second instance in this book, in this movie of somebody based of a child kind of understanding the rules that adults organize their world by and then like learning to manipulate that a little bit and be and like being forced to say like, look, I know I have no value to you as a person, but like, what if you're being spiritually blackmailed and then you're forced to take good care of me because otherwise you could die, which is brilliant and also very sad. And so and then, Alex, I you should tell us about Rose because you love what Rose does. And also she marries Andrew McCarthy from our favorite movie, Weekend at Bernie's. I'm just going to jump jump in and tell you about the experience of watching this in 1993. Mm-hmm. The minute Andrew McCarthy appeared on the screen, <laughs> the entire audience gasped. I did by myself. So if you can imagine like 400 people gasping at once at the sight of Andrew McCarthy. I mean, in 1993, Andrew McCarthy was like just out of the 80s movie fame. And so there was a gasp of recognition, but also what? Andrew McCarthy is in the Joy Luck Club? How did that happen? (laughs) And he's wearing these amazing 90s 
very, very wide-shouldered suits, too. He sure is. So he he sh- so this will be a slight butchering, and I will need help with what Rose ultimately says. But basically, Rose meets Andrew McCarthy's character. They get into a relationship. He brings her around to like his parents. Is it a country club? Like some exclusive pretty white and pretty affluent setting. His parents, his mom in particular, reveals that the family is racist, are not approving of the relationship, uh, essentially say to her, you know, to to keep her distance. Uh, he hears it and kind of does the like, you know, on the surface triumphant, like you're glad he's like, I'm not racist. I'm going to sort of go for it. It's very Mystic Pizza. Yes. Yeah. Where Julia Roberts is dating the waspy guy who like makes a big scene in front of his yes. parents and like rips yes. off the tablecloth and then he's all proud of himself. And she's like, you're using me to like rebel against right. your parents. They're just being themselves. Totally. And so in their relationship, Rose essentially decides, very well said by Jasmine earlier, to make herself small, to make their relationship work Mm -hmm. in order to minimize her ambitions. And this is the trickiest one with regard to like what's wrong and what's right, because on the surface, they're using all the right words and all the right expectations, but also he is taking advantage of her willingness in order to make herself small in order to put himself first. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, what happens in relationships is, you know, there are resentments that are created. There's taking the dimensionality out of your relationship. And does he have an affair? I can't remember. He starts to see somebody. Yeah. That's found out. They start to go through the process of going through a divorce. He comes to see her at their house that she wants to hold on to as a part of the divorce agreement. And the second biggest reveal outside of being like, this is Andrew McCarthy, is she says this thing to him that I can't remember the specifics of. Do either of you remember exactly what she says? I think she's she has just heard the the story mm-hmm. of her grandmother who she's never yes. met. Mm-hmm. And she she tells him you know, this isn't really me. I'm just like carrying out the legacy. Like I died 60 years ago and I, I swallowed opium so that my daughter might have a better life. And I'm not, you're not taking my daughter. You're not taking my house. And there's a close up of Andrew McCarthy and he pops out one very important tear. (laughs) So, so it's, uh, I actually remember that scene as much as I remember the soy sauce scene or Vivian Wu's dramatic entrance when she's playing fourth wife. <laughs> because she says it without, co- like, we know the context because we've just seen her see hear the story. Yeah, he has no idea what's going on. <laughs> right. She just says to him as text that she is essentially her ancestors and she will not give up her baby. And you're like, this must be big for him to be hearing right now. <laughs> But so in in the book, I don't think they reconcile. Oh, so in, wow. the, in the in the movie, they they reconcile. But um, mm. some of the marriages in the book don't have quite as happy of an ending. Yeah. So it's never like they reconcile, but we keep seeing Andrew McCarthy around. So you're like, well, they figured it out. And uh, I like it either way. Honestly, I like it that she says that mm-hmm. and sort of like reclaims self and they end up sort of finding a way through it. Or I like that they go their separate ways after doing that. But I really love that scene where she essentially to him, no context says all of that stuff. And you're like, wow, that would be a heavy thing to hear just walking in cold. And I I love that story a lot because all the stories that we've heard so far, it's pretty evident 
like what the power dynamic is and that there's some good and bad there. And this is kind of a classic, like liberal, well-intended circumstance that still leads to a lot of the same outcomes if it wasn't liberal and well-intended. Um, To go back a few minutes, um, mm-hmm. we forgot to mention that Lena, after she leaves the stingy asshole husband, we see in the, the frame narrative of the dinner party that she winds up with a really hot new boyfriend. So that's, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's another update from the book. Yeah. Some edges have been sanded in a good way um, or in a helpful way for a movie. This movie was directed by Wayne Wang, mm-hmm. who is tremendous and has made two other m- movies I really enjoy called Chan is Missing, which was uh, early indie in the 80s, and then Dim mm-hmm. Sum, A Little Bit of Heart. Like, mm-hmm. So I... A, a, like kind of to this point a little indie guy mm-hmm. uh, by way of the movies he was given the opportunities to make mm-hmm. making this giant movie that it's again like eight vignettes that at some point has like a war scene in it mm-hmm. truly tremendous four period films with um, hundreds of extras yeah. so so it's, it's kind of like they had to make eight movies yeah yes totally totally it's really unreal and it's as long as goodfellas and uh, you know, you know who loved Chan is missing. Who? Roger Ebert. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Roger. Yeah, love you. Yeah, and I think this is a different side of his career spectrum. But I believe Wayne Wang made Queen Latifah's Last Holiday, which is a fucking yep. great movie. <laughs> For sure, Wayne Wang's great. A lot of great movies. Yeah, and then that and then that brings us back to June. Oh, yeah. That brings us back to Doe. <laughs> And you're like, this will certainly end positively. (laughs) Well, she actually does get a bit of a happy ending compared to the others. Yes, absolutely. You're right. Yeah. Well, and and Jasmine, why don't don't you take us home summary wise and then we can can get into it. Oh, so so at the beginning of the movie, we'd seen that June was a a piano. Her mother, Suyun, had hoped for her to be a piano prodigy. And so we the movie had opened with the the most excruciating piano recital of all time. So Mm -hmm. I have in my notes that. This movie makes me want to get bangs for my daughter, <laughs> which she always asks for. But it also makes me very wary of having her take piano lessons. Oh, yeah. Because I, I, it's hard to shake Chinese mom tendencies. I mean, I, I definitely am someone who like puts too many layers of clothes on her just because I was raised that way. And I, I just can feel myself being the, the kind of mom who like nags her to practice the piano. But so we, we get an echo of that in this very passive aggressive escalating to terrible scene of June and Waverly at a it's another flashback of a, a big family dinner and there's a, a fight about copywriting of all things I love that and then there's a talk about the the best quality the best quality crab and we get mm-hmm. this scene where Suyun gives June uh, there's a lot of symbolic jade necklaces in this movie like the mm-hmm. giving of a jade necklace is is very important and mm-hmm. they have this moment where she says to June I see you and the music swells and the audience cries another bucket full of tears. Yeah. And June has the best quality heart. Yes. June has the best quality heart. And we get the scene near the end where June and her dad are getting ready to go to the airport to go to, I think to Shanghai to meet the sisters and her dad gives her the feather, the literal feather from the feather story. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how, they're going to give some of Suyan's pictures to the twin girls. And this is the scene that my sister and I like can recite to each other over and over again, where, where the dad says of the photos, I have lots, you have lots. Now they should have her. And so my sister and I will just like say this back to each other and just get sad all over again. 
And then um, June makes the the journey to Shanghai with feather in hand and with mm. the pictures of her mother. And the the movie ends with her re- sharing the the sad news that their mother has already passed. And mm. then it ends with them hugging each other and saying that she's she's managed to um, deliver her mother's. This was her mother's long cherished wish. And it ends with the sisters embracing and then a, a shot panning out to see this uh, very uh, crowded dock. Yeah. And calling her little sister, right? Yes. Yeah. Big, they say, call each other big sister and little sister. <sighs> oh, it's so nice. Everybody cries. Go get the theater. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> there should be like, if there, if you'd make a movie that makes people cry that much, there should just be like people handing out cups of Gatorade, like at marathons, at least in the lobby. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when we talked about rewatching this movie for this this episode, you were saying, I'm going to have to make sure I stay really well hydrated so that I can handle all the crying. That's true. <laughs> just to float Wayne Wang's boat once again, um, just thinking about the fact that, again, like there's this frame narrative where they're at dinner and then we have all these vignettes so that's one of the frame there's, there's two frames happening right because like that's one of the frames that's the second frame and the first frame is the feather story right yeah. like we are also living in the feather story which is one frame and then that finds resolution by going to the end and then like right above that is the story of all of their feather stories which is <sighs> yeah why like that's tremendous <laughs> i i think that the best way for today's viewer to experience the frame is to just not think too hard about it because it, it's 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 a very old-fashioned way of storytelling and in in the book there's actually no frame at all it just goes mm. vignette to vignette I mean it was such an emotional journey to reread the book like in preparation for our conversation and also to watch the movie again so I don't think I've seen the movie in like maybe 25 years. Like I think I saw it once as a teenager, once in my 20s, but mm-hmm. I haven't, and I'm 44 now, so I haven't seen it in so long. And at first I was worried, like, is it going to still make me cry? I'm on Cymbalta now. Maybe I won't have any feelings. <laughs> I ended up crying so much that I had to put on sunglasses to go to this play date afterwards. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like don't mind me. I just watched the Joy Lock Club and like my face was all blotchy. But it's, I have not cried this much a while watching a movie since the last time I watched this. I mean, certainly as a Chinese American daughter, it hits such a primal place that's kind of beyond language. Mm. I think I didn't realize like how much of like this cultural lore has just seeped into me because when I was Mm. rereading the book and watching the movie, I'm like, oh, wait, I did that in my book. I didn't even realize that there was like passing of family photos and giving of the jewelry of ancestors as like a meaningful moment, like stuff about like the way you're raised culturally just like comes out in in all the art you, you make. Yeah, I am not a big jewelry person, but I am a kind of a superstitious person. And so I have the only piece of jewelry I really wear is a necklace that my mother gave to me that her father gave to her and that I haven't taken off in over a year, like partly because I'm afraid of losing it if I set it down, but also because I feel on some level that it's protecting me. And if I take it off, you know, maybe my head will fall off. We don't know. And I was I'm staying with our friend and frequent guest Candace Opper and was talking about how I feel like superstition is good for us or good for me anyway. And something that I think my mom and I both kind of gravitate to because we're just like very anxious people. And I think having like superstition or ritual or like a belief in, you know, something having significance beyond just existing as an object that looks pretty 
is it like a way of navigating a very scary world where you feel yeah. like, you know, like if I keep this necklace on, then like I have a sense of control um, or if not control, then empowerment, at least. One of the things that uh, Olivia Lang talks about in The Lonely City is obviously through like anxiety and attachment style. And uh, one of the things that is said is loss is the cousin of loneliness mm-hmm. and our loneliness in relationship to loss and anxiety about loss ends up often manifesting itself in our tendency to see significance in objects mm. and in what we uh, hold on to and often that relates to hoarding that sort of like is this imbuing objects with significance mm-hmm. and this entire movie every object has a significance to its relationship with anxiety its relationship with loss its relationship mm-hmm. with loneliness you know and and you take away all of the story you can't take away all the stories but if you take away all the stories like this is a movie about objects which is mm-hmm. really fascinating too The other thing that makes me think of is that they did such a good job capturing the clutter of Chinese homes, too. (laughs) Like, I don't know what it is. Uh, There's a lot of keeping of stuff. And I mean, I'm certainly someone who has a really hard time throwing things away. But I've noticed this in a lot of Chinese family homes. There's just a lot of gathering of things. I think because if you've to make a broad generalization, I mean, most of the Asian immigrant families I've known have gone through a great deal of suffering to come to America. And so like the keeping of knickknacks and papers and stuff like takes on additional significance. And I I think a lot of this can be understood today through the lens of trauma. But Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're growing up in the eighties and nineties, like you don't have a language for talking about that. Like, like Mm -hmm. I don't think I understood that the Joyla club is so much about trauma and intergenerational trauma. Well, and so much of the characters in this movie, not even necessarily like broadly generalizing, but just looking at the specific characters in this movie, like none of the mothers when they were younger were not transient. Like they were going from one place to another to mm-hmm. another. And it doesn't seem like the ability to hold on to anything manifested until they arrived here. And so like their houses are places where they start keeping things. I think also, I think the movie kind of, gave me a way to imagine what my grandparents' generation went through. Mm. I mean, because the the amount of suffering and the having to like flee your home during wartime, it's for a kid growing up in suburban Chicago, it's quite far from my reality. Mm-hmm. Watching it again now in my 40s, it made me reflect on the fact that my my grandmother, when she left China, she didn't see her brother again for 50 years mm. and like never saw her parents again. Like she fled during wartime to Taiwan and like so many families were split up because of war and, mm. and then went the communists taking over and which is not really a uh, part of this movie, but I'm certainly affected my parents' generation. And mm-hmm. there's just not really a language for American kids to talk about that. And in many Asian families, you just don't bring it up. Mm-hmm. There's just all this tragic family history that's that's really never going to be discussed. And, you know, it's it's interesting that so this is the only movie I know like this that got like a broad American release. And obviously in the past handful of years, there's been a comparative boom of stories about Asian American families, but you know, like a a handful of movies that were given an opportunity to compete at the box office. Whereas like, I just don't think about the fact that like every third movie that's released in one way or another, especially towards the end of the 20th century was a movie that helped explain why your white father doesn't talk about his background very much. They're all like world war two movies in one way or another. And they're like, I don't even think that, 
that it was trying to help explain it. It was like, your dad shouldn't talk to you, you idiot. <laughs> it was, yeah, I don't know if it was trying to help, but it was like, like for me, like my father watching Saving Private Ryan, I was like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. like this is why you choke up in particular arenas that I never quite understood. Yeah. Or like the USS Indianapolis speech in Jaws. Even. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Be- beautifully said. And and so as a result, like it also didn't strike that like not having movies on screen to explain why your parents or why your family is not discussing particular things has to be profoundly confusing. And I can understand like the other day I was at a at a bar and overheard people talking about the Joy Luck Club. Like this is still a movie and a text that has meant an incredible amount to an incredible amount of people. And I imagine a good portion of that is like seeing a story that was not being told in the household finally being told in like a public setting? Well, for me, it was so pro. I mean, it's hard to put it into words because it's such an emotional experience. It was so profound to see people who looked like me on the screen, mm-hmm. like like a whole screen of people who looked like they mm-hmm. could be my family members. Um, and the same thing happened with Crazy Rich Asians. I don't mm-hmm. even love that movie and I don't even love rom-coms, but I think I was like near tears for most of it just to see people who looked like me on screen and like between the Joy Luck Club and Crazy Rich Asians, like there were no majority Asian movies um, coming out of Hollywood. And I think this was one of the first times I saw on screen, like people speaking Chinglish, like where the parents are speaking in Mandarin and then the the kids answer in English. I'm like, oh, they understand my life. And just to to see like so many like beautiful Chinese women. I mean, it was just such a profound experience. And like I'm younger than the generation um, depicted in, in the movie. So the moms are representing more of my grandmother's generation. But I mean, mm-hmm. so much of it, I think, rings true even now. And when I posted on social media about rewatching the movie, rereading the book, there are all these other Asian American writers around my age saying like, oh, I read that as a teenager. It meant so much to me. I felt like I was it was written just for me, mm-hmm. which is how I felt when I read the book. I think I must have been in eighth grade or ninth grade. It felt like oh, finally, I'm seeing a representation of the intense dissonance of growing up Chinese American, where your mm. your parents are raising you in a very Chinese way that has nothing to do with American society and culture. Mm. And all the conflicts the mothers and daughters go through, like it just rang so it rang so true. I would like to think that things are improving, but aside from crazy rotations and everything everywhere all at once, has there been anything else at that scale in the past few years? I'm excited to see Shortcomings, which is coming out, I think, next year, which Mm. I think it's it's an Asian American story, but it's not told through the immigrant family perspective. It's about Mm. like. I, so I was really interested in the the profile of Randall Park. I think it's I think the profile's by Hua Xu, and it's talking about how there are like Asian American family narratives, but mm. there's not as many narratives of Asian Americans being just surly and weird, and like, <laughs> con- con- contrary people. I mean, there's just so many indie movies mm-hmm. where white characters they just get to hang out and argue with each other, and there's not the burden of representation. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited to see shortcomings because it sounds like there's not like a family saga. It's just Asian Americans getting to just be people. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of when I was uh, in high school. My best friend who was Korean American was obsessed. And therefore, I was also obsessed with Margaret Cho. 
And that she kind of, it's interesting how like in her comedy career, like she was very much being, I think, surly (laughs) in that way. But then when she was on her like sitcom that ruined her life in the 90s, I think it was called All American Girl. And it was absolutely a, a family narrative because and yeah. I think I, w- I think I watched every episode of that show yeah what was it like I haven't I guess know that she had to diet so hard that she ended up pissing blood I mean Asian American sitcoms I mean it's complex is yeah. mainly what I'll say I mean there's certain a certain amount of like pandering to the white gaze which I think the Joy Club doesn't do very much mm. of yeah, and I'm I'm curious about kind of I don't know like where how you see the lack of pandering or like what that pandering would look like if there was more of it. But I also I'm reminded of something that you said when when you were visiting Portland and you were saying that you're looking for um, books for your daughter that are about Chinese or Asian or Asian American characters and that aren't about food or family and that you have found like was it nothing or one thing. <laughs> Uh, so I, I'm constantly looking for books for my daughter that are like Asian American protagonists that are not about dumplings and dragons <laughs> or great historical suffering where like I'm, I'm looking basically for Ramona Quimby, but Asian where yeah. the girl just gets to be an interesting little girl. Yeah. I guess break an egg on her face. <laughs> Or gets peanut butter in her, or she, yeah. she, I think she gets burrs in her hair and like her father has to get out with peanut butter. Like, where are the, the books like that where there's no educational component? Like, this is not about the Lunar New Year and this is not about the dumplings we make. I mean, those books are great, but I think I want her to also experience the world of being Chinese as just being normal mm-hmm. and not as this exotic thing. And I, I don't think we're quite there yet, at least in the world of children's literature. It's also impossible to find uh, Asian dolls. Mm. Really elusive. God. Well, I, I think the burden of representation is very real, like mm-hmm. not just in the making of art, but also your response to the audience afterwards. I mean, I I just did an event recently and the woman who asked this question had good intentions, but I mean, it's it's certainly not a question that any white author would be asked. So I gave my talk and she came up to say hello afterwards, an elderly white woman who asked, um, apropos of kind of nothing, she's like, so is your is your Chinese heritage in the book? Like, do you deal with it in your book? I'm like, yes, it's there. Thanks for coming. <laughs> like that kind of thing where... I mean, a white author just would never be asked that. And totally. you just kind of get used to it because you have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, in talking about kind of feeling like there isn't a ton of pandering to white audiences in this movie, I would sort of where do you where do you see that? And where what do you think it would look like if it were more present? I mean, I think probably there's the opposite feeling, too. I'm sure there's probably a lot of people who say that there is a lot of pandering. So there's also the the opposition, especially online. Um, To me, Mm -hmm. what felt so true and also just so, so Chinese and probably true of like many Asian cultures is so much is conveyed with just a glance. Mm. There's a lot of Mm. seething glances, especially between (laughs) the second wife and fourth wife, between Mm. the mothers and daughters. I mean, there's a scene where where Waverly is staging her rebellion saying, I'm not going to play chess anymore. And her mother just doesn't look at her. And like Mm. so much, like there's almost no dialogue and it's just Mm. like the most potent scene. So the way they convey like the power of silence in a Chinese family um, just was was so powerful. 
so I obviously I'm not from a Chinese family, but I am from a family who weaponized silence for days. And when mm. she comes down and tries to save herself from the silence by being like, I'm ready for chess now. And her mom's like, nope, that's not how it was. Uh, it broke me. It was so both resonant and just seeing that it's like, that's, that's it. You're the person who's not playing chess for your mother now from here on out. It was big. Yeah. Well, another thing that I I noticed from the vantage point of middle age watching this rather than as a 15 year old is that the movie really captures the pressure of growing up in a Chinese immigrant family Mm. in terms of like the pressure to always be not just successful, but exceptional, Mm. but also the immense pride. Mm. I actually, I think watching this again now, one of the scenes that really got me choked up was when Lindo is marching through San Francisco with the life um, magazine cover Mm -hmm. of Waverly as a chess champion. And somehow it made me think about how, like when my book came out, my dad knew that my publisher was buying a two-page ad in the New York Times book review. Like he knew that this was coming. And yet he went to Kinko's and made like homemade flyers for my book to, <laughs> to give out to the neighbors and the dentist. I mean, he really didn't need to oh, do that. But so it's great. like these manifestations of love, especially in Asian families, like the moms and daughters never say, I love you and I'm sorry. Yeah. Like they, mm-hmm. they, they communicate it through food or through arguing or through nagging. Like, you know how much they love each other, but it's not the kind of like super affectionate, highly verbal um, American families that you normally see on screen. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's a lot done in silence. After my after watching this for the first time and then, you know, the day that we ended up not being able to record, I then was home before going on this tour for not very long, but I had lunch with my mom and uh, did like have a moment like talking with her about because because I do I identify a lot with the the June story because I was had to take piano lessons as a kid never wanted to never practiced was never good at it but it was like I identify so much with the concept of like (laughs) my daughter will be just like me but will have all the things that I didn't have and like that I'm going to make this life for her and that at a certain point you know, like somehow, whether or not your parent is receptive to that, if that's been your life as as a child or as a daughter, that you have to kind of realize that their best hopes for you are not going to maybe be the things that make you happy. And maybe they never were. And you have to, I think, understand that you have to love the parent who put all those hopes in you by kind of not trying to be the thing that you were never going to be, but that is the version of her that she wanted to be able to be. And like, I don't know, like really how ha- I, we like had a moment where I was just like, of course, crying quite a bit and was like, you know, I understand why, uh, why it happened the way it did because you put all your best hopes into me. And I feel there's something that I find, I don't know that I wanted to talk about, about how this movie unfolds in terms of how like I feel like in in this world and with these characters and also at the moment in time that this book and movie came out that it was like all we could imagine to sort of acknowledge you know I the way you raised me caused me to suffer but I see now why you did it and I think now the conversation culturally that we're trying to have is more along the lines of like okay, but then what? Like after you reach that understanding, like then how do you heal and how do you go where where your parent maybe where your mother can't go with you? 
Or also all the Chinese American kids who have been raised on like 20 years of therapy. Like, how are we going to raise, <laughs> how are we going to raise our children? I mean, yeah. as you're talking about your mom putting all your hopes into you, I, I mean, one thing that my husband and I are trying to teach our daughter is to actually rest sometimes. Yeah. I think because, because I grew up um, with my parents are, are retired professors and I grew up watching them work around the clock. And so I, I don't actually understand what people do on weekends because I never actually like mm-hmm. saw anyone rest. And so we've had to force ourselves to say like, okay, we're going to take the afternoon off. We will go on a hike. We will go to a play date and like just show her um, what leisure looks like. Because I mean, if you've grown up in an immigrant family, there just is no rest. Like people don't have hobbies and mm-hmm. there is no like golf or tennis habit or something. But I mean, I understand why my parents never rested because they, they were starting their life in a new country. Mm-hmm. Like they had no yeah. safety net. Totally. They weren't just taking care of me and my sister, but they were taking care of their parents, their siblings, their cousins. I mean, the pressures that my husband and I face are nothing compared to mm-hmm. my parents, like bringing everyone to the U.S. and also really helping everyone get established too. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's just a, a responsibility that most couples in their early thirties don't have. Mm-hmm. I think this movie, um, is a conversation. I, I don't know what kind of conversations it started in, in the nineties, but I mean, I, I certainly hope there's a new generation that will discover it. I mean, what's, I think the sad thing is they're just so few big Asian movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm glad that everything everywhere all at once is so weird. Like, it, like <laughs> it has a, it has a immigrant mother's daughter story at its center, but I mean, a movie like that wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago because it, it's just so right. out there. Yeah. And I mean, what what kind of movies do you want to see? Like if you were one of the green light people in Hollywood, like what would you be making happen? I mean, as a viewer and a fan, I mean, it's I think what's so frustrating is that the Asian characters are always the the best friend or the doctor in the background right. or like when Lauren Tom was on Friends, which felt like such a big moment. She was Ross's girlfriend. Like they're they're always mm-hmm. like the side characters, like never the main character. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, the the show Beef like is a really interesting show to watch. Like while thinking about the Joy Luck Club, because mm-hmm. that whole show is about. Asian rage, like mm-hmm. it, like the repression of anger and then like the unleashing of anger. I mean, there's probably so many stories by Asian American um, screenwriters and directors that are just not being greenlit. And I'm not sure why. I mean, it's crazy that there is a 25 year gap between the Joy Luck Club and Crazy Rich Asians because like an entire generation grew up thinking like an all Asian film was just impossible. Right. Mm. I guess I don't know. I'm just so sick of the argument in publishing and in Hollywood and wherever that like, oh, we're not we can't make that movie. There's not enough money in the idea. And it's like, yes, there is. Like if you have just had crazy recreations come out and make so much goddamn money and had everything everywhere all at once fucking sweep the Oscars, then like you are out of excuses. And what it comes down to is your own failure of imagination and your own failure to like see yourself in in other people's lives right like or to acknowledge that you don't have to because i think we act like everything has to be relatable and i think that like on a human level like you should be able to see that like something has emotional resonance and understand it that it's functioning on a story level even if it doesn't speak to your experience and just that it's like 
I don't know, the people who are in charge are doing a bad job. That's not, a, you know, everyone knows that, but it's worth saying. Like, they, there's no, there are no excuses remaining. They cannot be made. I think it makes me reflect on, like, how there are more Asian voices now, but it there's a certain foreignness to being mm. Asian in America that you just can't shake. Like, no matter your level of success or influence, like, you're walking down the street in many parts of America and you will always register as foreign. How consciously or unconsciously influential has the book and movie been in your writing? So I talk about Amy Tan a lot on book tour because I I was saying that I, I didn't start writing until I was in college because it didn't occur to me that I could be an author mm. because when I was growing up, there was just Amy Tan and Maxine Hong Kingston, which mm. are, I mean amazing people to look up to, but that's like saying, like, I'm going into broadcasting and I want to be Oprah. Like, it felt <laughs> so completely unattainable. But in a lot of ways, she was my girlhood hero. I mean, the book just meant so much to me. Um, it was the first time I really felt seen in anything I read. I mean, at the time, you're being forced to read The Great Gatsby and like The Sun Also Rises. And so mm -hmm. to read The Joy Luck Club in my off hours yeah. was life changing. And she was actually the first author event I ever went to. And I have mm -hmm. a really, I have a really funny photo of 16 year old me with, I'm really proudly wearing my J crew cable knit sweater. <laughs> and um, I'm standing behind Amy Tan cause she'd come to my town and she had her little dog in a bag. And the funny thing is I just met her again for the first time, uh, like in March Oh my gosh! at a robotics conference of all things. Oh. <laughs> and, and I, I had several long incomprehensible conversations with her where I was just babbling, like basically like you're my girlhood idol. I love you so much. You paved the way. And I it just, uh, I don't think I said one lucid thing. I was just so starstruck. And I, a friend of mine said, I didn't even know Amy Tan is a person you could meet because <laughs> like, she, she's so she's so iconic. And I mean, it's crazy. The Joyla Club was her debut novel. I mean, it's such a part of the canon now that it's hard yeah. to believe like like she once had to ask for blurbs and like work on a marketing campaign. <laughs> totally. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know that she was influential so much as that she made my career possible. That's amazing. I mean, she, mm -hmm. she, she made the career of like, any of the Asian American authors who've come up since then possible. None of us would have book contracts without Amy Tan. Mm -hmm. And her it, cultural impact, especially for a whole generation of Asian Americans and Asian American women, especially really cannot be overstated. I mean, I, I just hope that she has had a happy life, like, because like, there's so much responsibility. And like, it's such a burden in a way to to be like the first one. So I hope that she's been able to enjoy her success and influence because she's meant so much to so many people. Oh, that's so good. Mm. What is your favorite vignette? And why? I love the scene between Waverly and Lindo in the hair salon. I mean, I have a lot of favorite scenes, but I mm. love the scene where, where Waverly is saying, like, why don't you like my white fiance? And Lindo, she says, if I didn't like him, I would have wished for him to have cancer and for you to be a young <laughs> widow. And like that, that's her loving thing that she says. And then she's, she says something along the lines of, you know, of course I, I like him. Like I would have to like him to allow him to marry a daughter like you, which is like mm. so barbed, but full of tenderness too. Mm -hmm. I also love that scene between them in the salon. And I love... Also, Waverly saying to Lindo, you don't know how much power you have over me, because I feel like that mm. is 
that's such a, a thing with parents and children that I think if you have when parents, you know, parent us in ways that make us feel small, it's often, I think, because they've felt small in their own lives um, and that they're not. I think parents often historically are not conscious of their power. And it is like a very it's a very life in this moment kind of thing to like parent mindfully and thoughtfully and to be like, yes, this is a very difficult job and toddlers can insult you in a very pure way more deeply than almost anyone. <laughs> but I still have all the power here. And Jasmine, I, I don't know. I love hearing you talk about parenting. It feels, I don't know, it makes me optimistic. I believe the children are our future, <laughs> especially these ones. It's also more fun than it seems in the Joy Luck Club or my book. It's, it's more fun in real life, I promise. Also, just the, the end not being, the ending is beautiful. The fact that she gets the opportunity to fulfill her mother's wish, but it's not like a yay ending like it's not a saccharine ending it is no. a sad and triumphant ending which i think was a really beautiful choice and yes it you should hydrate before watching this movie because mm -hmm. obviously you're going to cry in response to it but the choice of that being the ending and mm -hmm. the twins seeing her and having the moment of recognition that the mother is not there mm -hmm. and realizing that that's her sister so many things happen in that 30 second piece that is true like truly a pretty phenomenal feat of filmmaking and it it, yeah. it, it hit me it's a happy ending, but it, it gives a hint of the difficult journey ahead for the family. Oh, yeah. yeah. For sure. I don't, yeah, I, I love it because I feel like that's, those are the, the endings or at least the kind of turns in the story that real life gives us where you can't, the happy ending is not that you get what you always wanted, but it, that it's that you find the strength to, uh, to get through not having it. Mm. Oh, I just want to add my, so my dad's great dream is that I'll one day write the Joy Luck Club for dads. And I have to say, <laughs> I don't know that I have the skills as a writer to do that. So if someone listening wants to write the Joy Luck Club for dads, like yeah. someone should do it. And then you can, you can get a copy and just cross out their name and write Jasmine. Yeah. <laughs> Part of what I enjoy about the Joy Luck Club is June's father is just listed in the cast as June's father. Like, like <laughs> The men don't have stories in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, they do. But do we care about them? No. <laughs> so th so all of that said, we know June has a father. Mm -hmm. Does her father have a name? No. <laughs> <laughs> but who, uh, who, in your view, is the daddy? Do you want to kick us off, uh, Jasmine? So can I, I don't know if we all have the same um, answer, but I, I think it's Auntie Lindo. Mm. I mean, she just pops off the screen. I don't know why she wasn't nominated for an Oscar. It's such a yeah. incredible yeah, performance. She's so great. Like every single line, like your attention just goes right to her. And she has so much, um, you can tell like with, in each scene, like there's a whole world there. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think like she's definitely for me the most memorable character. And I, I think I think she's the daddy of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, she's she's really kind of like the, it feels like the star of the show in a lot of ways. So, you know, this is a daddyless universe in a lot of ways. We we very occasionally have those. And um, I'm glad that we have that here. But I think June fulfilling her mother's role. I have trouble reconciling this with the daddy term. She really is just is able to 
she's really able to fulfill her mother's dream and wish and longing and, you know, deliver the feather as it were literally and metaphorically. So I'm going to say June and June goes a lot of the movie thinking she doesn't have the power to rise to the occasion. She thinks that she's incredibly powerless and she finally does rise. So I almost feel bad saying that it's the daddy role because she's fulfilling her mom's role. So she's the mom in this movie and I, I like it. (sighs) Um, and I, I second that because I love watching her grow and sort of and I mean all the daughters in this movie I think have to grow and step out of the smallness that they have kind of forced themselves into in ways that I I love seeing. I'm going to echo June but I'm also going to say the film's composer Rachel Portman because oh my god the score. The movie and the plot and the performances like are enough but the score just kind of it tips you over the edge. It really does. Yes. Yeah. It highlights the poignancy and the sadness of so much, but also that there's like a real feeling of hopefulness in it. Kind of there, you can hear that feather fluttering around. And um, <laughs> yeah, and I guess, and it, I don't know. I'm I'm so amazed that this movie like found a way to somehow exist. I don't know how uh, we got so lucky, or why no one has paid attention to how well it did except kind of in fleeting moments and in conclusion i don't know why people in hollywood don't want to make money they claim they want to make money but they seem to hate money so i don't know i don't know what that's about they're trying to make a sequel actually that's what i hear yeah they're i think they're trying to make it with with the original cast where it's a grandmother's mother's children's story where the the new generation are millennials Uh, yeah and uh here's hoping that the word millennials doesn't spell out a cringy nightmare as it does so much of the time. And uh, yeah. And Jasmine, I'm, you do such great work. Could you just tell people who don't know uh, where, where do they find your writing? And um, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. I listen to your show so much. It's kind of like you live in my house with me. So it's, it's funny to do a, the conversation with you live. I'm like, oh, I, I, you actually are living my house with me today. <laughs> so I, I am on Twitter, but I am more interesting on Instagram, I would say. Right. So on, tw- on Twitter, it's my first name and last name. And then on, on Instagram, it's my first name, period, last name. Mm-hmm. And you're the best. And you wrote an amazing book that, that I love. And also that uh, Barack Obama loves. Ever heard of him? <laughs> but your love was first. <laughs> all right everybody that is it for this week's episode of you are good at feelings podcast about movies thank you so much to jasmine chan don't forget to buy her book or check it out at a library or find it in whatever way you find books the school for good mothers Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode and editing the episode. Thank you so much to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make our episodes sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thanks to you for listening to the show. We really appreciate you. You, my friend, are good. Don't forget to find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at youaregoodpod.com. And don't forget that you can find us on Patreon or you can subscribe on Apple Podcast subscriptions. That helps make the whole show possible. And we appreciate y'all for doing that. You get bonus episodes. You love a bonus episode. 
All right, that's it for now. We really appreciate uh, you. We're glad that we got to do this. And uh, I don't know, this is lovely. Thanks for being here.